May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Last week, we got a chance to hear some basic understanding on chronic pain and fibromyalgia, hearing about nociplastic pain, which is part of the neuroplastic functioning of the brain and how it can change and adapt, that pain is real, but that there may not be a specific injury and that there are many different triggers for nociplastic or centralized pain, as it's also been called. This is the second part of the interview with Dr. Afton Hassett, and she has the recent book, Chronic Pain Reset. In this second episode, we are going to look at some of the 30 days of activities, practices, and skills to help you thrive. A quick disclaimer, remember that while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own individual physician. I hope the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast and book can be a good starting point on your journey to help live better with fibromyalgia. And I think the book Chronic Pain Reset would be a great complement to what is covered in the book Conquering Your Fibromyalgia. And now on to this week's episode. So a lot of the second half of your book Mm -hmm. is looking at a menu of options, giving the science and research behind it, and then offering that Can you talk a little bit about that as well? I'd love to. So the first part of the book, as you were saying, it just gives the neuroscience of pain in a really gentle, hopefully accessible package. I tell a lot of stories and hopefully it's humorous, but I also talk about thoughts and emotions and relationships and our values and character and gratitude, positive, just positive things that can be, they can be tapped into to give more resilience. And then we do something that we don't, that, that we do in, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, but we do it much more slowly. So what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy is we'll put forward a thing a week. We think, about, hey, this is a really great pain strategy that you can use. When I teach you about pacing based on time, which means that you will do an activity and you will do the activity for a safe amount of time. And then you're going to stop doing that activity and rest before you induce a pain flare. So maybe you can rake leaves for four minutes and know you're not going to induce a pain flare. Then you're going to relax for three minutes. Then you're going to wake another four minutes. Then you're going to relax. And so that's a skill. We'll, take, we'll teach people that skill in a week. They'll try it out. They'll think about it. They'll come back into therapy the next week and say, hey, I like it. That worked. Then we teach them a new skill the next week. So what I do in the book, I actually do this more like speed dating. And I have... 30 skills and practices taken from cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, dialectical behavior therapy, and positive psychology. So just evidence-based approaches 
and I lay them out there. And so what will happen is the person uh, reading the book will open up a day and read just two pages about a strategy or skill. It could be anything from mindful breathing. It could be taking a nature break. It could be, like I said, activity pacing. It could be, we have four different ways of challenging our thoughts, self-compassion. But whatever it is, you read about it for that day. You read about how you can try it for the day. And then you read about if you love it, how you can come back and actually put it into practice. But then you take that day, you give it a try during the day, and then you come back at the end of the day and you evaluate it. Okay, so I tried that. I didn't really like it. I think it's stupid. I don't want to do it. Fine. Then the next day you pop open it and you try the next one. Oh my gosh, this one resonates with me. I think I can do this. I'm actually excited to do this. And so then you mark that. And by the end of the 30 days, you've tried 30 different evidence-based skills and practices. And ideally, you've come up with maybe five to 10 that you really like. And then what we do is we build what we call a thriving plan. And I help walk you through it. You decide what's the most important things to you. What, you know, is it your sleep? Is it decreasing your pain? What's the most important thing? And then how does these skills that you've picked, how do they map onto it? And then I just encourage you to try one of them, give them a true test. A true test is two to three weeks. And you really try the skill. If it's doing sleep hygiene, you really do it for two to three weeks, right? And you knock things down and you get things just right. And then you decide, this is great. And actually, but hopefully by then you're actually starting to feel something and feel better. And then that actually by that point starts to become a habit. And then you introduce the next thing. Okay, I need to start walking too. And sometimes you can overlap them a little bit. You get two weeks into sleeping. Maybe you want to start your walking program. That's great too, right? But there's a lot to do to, to, to build this program and a lot of direction on how you kind of do it. And what we know as clinicians and psychologists, that there's many treatments for chronic pain. Over and over again, I can ask anybody, what is what do you think is the single most important treatment for people with chronic pain? And almost every clinician I know says the same thing. It's the treatment that the patient will do. <laughs> and we as humans are just, I'm just as bad if a doctor gives me a pill or something that he wants me to do or she wants me to do, and it doesn't make sense to me. I'm a bad patient too. I won't do it. <laughs> Why would I do that? So we as humans are programming do stuff that makes sense to us. We do things that don't seem like they're painful and ridiculous. And so that's why I encourage people to pick things that they are actually excited to do. That it, you know, If you want to take nature breaks, take a nature break. If you want to start salsa dancing, if you want to start art, gratitude journaling, journaling, there's a million different things that can really bring a little more joy, a little more engagement to our lives. Because when we're doing things we love and are totally engaged and loving it, we actually feel less pain. That focus really helps our brain step away from that urgent alarm pain signal. And I think in a perfect world, this can be done as a working with your pain psychologist, therapist that's working in this or your spouse or close friend, family that can help talk. Now they may not be an expert, but hopefully if they can help work alongside of this, I'm guessing that some people may be buying this for their spouse who's struggling might be one of those, but maybe they're listening to the podcast as well and yeah. just trying to say, I think sometimes there's a fatalistic view, like somebody who says, okay, I'm going to walk 10,000 steps because that's so good. So you can't, if you're starting at 500, yeah. you're going to walk and you're going to feel worse. Yeah. But the advice with the sleep I've over the years when initiating things that were under the chronic pain umbrella, like migraines and mm-hmm. teenagers, I'll say, Hey, for two weeks, yeah. let's get up every day at the same time. 
Yeah. And let's go to bed every day at the same time. <laughs> and the first week you'll dust off a few maybe le- migraines. And then the yeah. second week you'll probably feel better. Now, yeah. I only say two weeks because you'll never do it. No, not forever. Never. For the rest of your life. Yeah. You can just say, I'm doing an experiment. Yes. I, I, I can't go out if it's prom or whatever that's <laughs> coming up now at the time of this yeah. recording. But now you can see, I have to admit, yeah. it does It'll work better when I have that. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. and you, in the beginning of the book, talk about this as an orchestra, that mm-hmm. there has to be many things working really yeah. well. And for many people, if they really look at their pain journal, they had been doing a lot of these things, mm-hmm. but they didn't know they had them or that they needed to do them mm-hmm. until the rugs pulled out from under yeah. them. Yeah. And then they go, oh, now it's the birth of a child, God mm-hmm. bless children, but also at the same time making it more yeah. challenging and having mm-hmm. to, how do we fit all of these in? Yeah and support people. Yeah. I love that you say that too, because it is one of the things I really see almost as a pattern with people with chronic pain, that a lot of them are just like nice people and then put everybody else first and take care of everything else first. And then with limited energy and pain, they also then tend not to do the stuff that they really love and value. And that stuff gets set aside. And then it's not surprising that a lot of people with chronic pain get depressed and anxious because if you're not doing the stuff you love, you're not sleeping the way you want to sleep. That's like a normal human reaction to an incredible stressor and also the loss of joy. And so that's a key element of the book too, is that we, our mental health is not good if we're not doing things that feed our souls too. We have to do that. And. Pleasant activity scheduling is one of the, one of the, uh, one of the activities people learn about in that is writing it, writing down the things that you love and want to do on your calendar and treating them like appointments and doing them. If it's two hours, I'm going to go out and have a special lunch with my two best friends. I'm going to spend one hour just taking a walk in nature. And then I'm going to spend another two hours just walking through the art museum, just on the first floor, just two hours. Whatever that is, but what, and, and then treating those things like they are critical appointments. Again, it's just making the time, forcing the time for self-care because it will benefit you in the long run. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes when somebody's feeling overwhelmed, taking the time to do that, but that's where you get somebody to support you to mm-hmm. book and let's yeah. go through some of these strategies together and what can we yeah. do and work along what I was working with a good friend or spouse that can help you along the way and help understand these because many people are also very frustrated with their loved one who's going through it because they don't understand this. And often because they've been to so many physicians, they wonder maybe it is in their head. Mm -hmm. Maybe this isn't a real thing. And yet having this information, if they could get this Mm -hmm. really early in Mm -hmm. the course of this, kind of that. The stre- and what people want to know what works. I had a patient today, a teenager who was having some struggles that were related to sleep hygiene. Yeah. Goes from school, comes home, and or not, goes right to work and yeah. has two and a half hours of work. And he's, I wish I can understand things like a, an, an equation. I said, okay, a kid needs eight and a half, nine hours of sleep. They got to <laughs> get up at 6.45 every day. Mm-hmm. And they need these many hours of sleep. Oh, they work after school. I yeah. said, that's the function or equation that has the solution is 
you need to tell your boss you can only work till 6.30. Yes. And then you have to have all of these. And mm-hmm. I said, what would your boss say? I can just tell him what my hours are. He said, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to save money. I said, how much money do you save? I haven't mm-hmm. really thought about it. How much <laughs> well, have you planned on saying I'll sacrifice and maybe work Thanksgiving morning or the day mm-hmm. after Thanksgiving or mm-hmm. this over Christmas yeah. break and planning all of these? Well, I haven't really thought in that mm-hmm. anxiety of and sometimes that planning, but then that mm-hmm. insight. And then I'm expecting when he does this, well, I do better. Yeah. And functioning better along with that and those create those success creates yeah, success and those steps and build on each other and yeah. build on each other. One of the things that I was thinking, and because I'm both a pediatrician and an internist, and because I get a chance to see families, and there's a lot of stories that I hear when I get a chance to look at things. And I don't know if you as much in the world of of pediatrics, but I say the first chronic pain condition, chronologically, Mm -hmm. what it is. What? Colic. Colic. Oh, that early. And because when you start looking at the studies on it, there's a lot of comorbidity of others. So usually now as a pediatrician, when a baby's fussy, I'm like, so mom, dad, yeah. Did either of you guys have a history of migraine yeah. or IBS? Did any of you guys have some insomnia, restless mm-hmm. leg? And then it's, oh. And yeah. bridging to the kind of the question is I'm getting a chance to see this because yeah. sadly, like you see, is that there were some central pain syndromes. There was the abdominal pain in childhood, growing pains, more painful periods. And then yeah. there were all those clues. But if you can identify, and this is, <laughs> I think I'm probably the only pediatrician in the country going, this is a sign That's that early. your child has a more sen- sensitive yeah. nervous system. Yeah. This child is going to thrive better yeah. with a healthier diet, yes. not going to sleepovers, regular schedule, yeah. getting regular exercise, all yeah. of these things. and. Mm-hmm. Tracking that forward, mm-hmm. just hopefully maybe like the parent who's often had intermittent pain and maybe mm-hmm. has learned to self-manage. But what are your thoughts on then and I, working with now the children to help educate and understand yes. so they can help prevent or minimize their future pain syndromes? So this is delightful. It reminds me of a pair of studies that we've recently published Chelsea Kaplan is a neuroscientist that's in our group, and she has been working with the ABCD data. Are you familiar with that? Nope. Oh, this is amazing. For, you know, so this is a pediatric effort that was supported by National Institutes of Health. It's actually started more along the lines for NIDA, for looking at substance abuse and addiction and following children. But what they've done is they've found very young children. I believe they started at eight and then they assess them every year, but they also do neuroimaging with them. And so there's these really rich data that I think we're up to about eight years now, nine years now. And because it's an NIH resource, you can write a grant or you can write a proposal and you can have access to the data. We did two studies with our question being, what predicts new onset of chronic pain in young peds, Right. And there's always been this argument that, oh, no, no, depression comes first. Depression, anxiety, that's what explains this. We're like, no, we really don't think so. We really think that's more reactive to the the process of chronic pain. 
And not too far away from what you were saying with your colicky baby theory is that it is multiple somatic complaints that aren't pain, not necessarily back pain or pain at all, but just somatic complaints and more sensitivity to to just feeling and being exposed to things. Fatigue, and I think poor sleep, I'm forgetting now what the exact ones, but the piece that was so exciting that we published is that there is connectivity in the brain that looks like adults with chronic pain. So it's two networks. It's a salience network to, connecting to the default mode network that we see in adult patients. We're seeing it in children. And then these same children were the ones that developed chronic pain down the road. So it's, it, it, we're already seeing it in the brain at this very young age. They're preloaded. So you're calling babies. That's probably it. Because remember, we always think that this kind, this lays here, it's probably genetic. There is a biology waiting for it to happen. But if well cared for and the big horrible shocker doesn't come along, you know what? Maybe we just skirt past the whole chronic pain thing, right? So I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting what you're seeing clinically and what we've really shown with some remarkable data. And I think getting this book into the hands of pediatricians and family practice doctors as well as yes. who are able to understand this. I shared with my new um, doctor, I mentioned uh, that I'm uh, what I do as a niche on top of primary care. And he's, oh, yeah, those are all the patients that when you see them on your schedule. Yeah. And unfortunately, when you, one of the most satisfying things is when you help somebody who's had chronic pain get better, it's so much more rewarding than treating yeah. somebody's strep throat or urinary tract infection. Although many primary care doctors may get burned out by this mm-hmm. in both the acute care because it's more, quote, satisfying to get an acute episode. But when you, it's almost like the um, exponentially greater reward based on the year and time and intensity of an suffering and then to help them get better when often hope. And that's yeah. where your book gives that information to reframe things to help. The sad part is, and I'm guessing your system, but maybe it is immune mm-hmm. to this, is still thinking on a much more medical model or intervention model when doing that epidural or the injection for that chronic pain still thinks that, okay, there's something in that area, which we know there are pain. Sometimes it's right. It can be coexisting along with this. And, but getting this information and helping us reframe this is so important, but I'm guessing that yeah. happens too, right? Where the system, may right. not, you, you, not everybody gets to go directly. To- so so, I, I, so I'm, getting, I'm getting really encouraging signs. The gentleman who directs our, uh, our, our clinic bought 10 books, 10 copies of the book. And he's, oh my God, this is what we try to explain to patients. We just don't have time to explain to them. Oh my yeah. gosh. And if it, it, and in short chapters, it's, he, he, he's so delighted. And then I just heard just tonight from a physician who has a, he, a very large teaching institution that just said that he read the book and he's oh my god he was i just wrote a smart phrase for epic so that when we see patients we actually put it in their charts and send them home and say let's talk about this because he says you've explained it <laughs> and yeah. so just they get it they get everybody on the same page but most physicians don't even get this training either so i think it's really useful for clinicians 
I've worked with physical therapists who um, are telling me to say, oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> we yeah. feel like we want to do more with our patients and we're getting training in mindfulness, and, but we don't really have a way to enact it. We, we can talk about it. We don't have a tool for them to take and use. Yeah. And, and when you can get more support, when there's yeah. a buy-in from the family and the support yeah. on that, yeah. and then along with the patient and working through that, and mm. when other things haven't I can think of mm-hmm. patients who may be in severe, have had multiple traumas and yeah. now they're struggling and they're just laying in bed, barely getting yeah. out of bed, overwhelmed, oh, yeah. having pain episodes, going back and forth to the emergency mm-hmm. room. And so I think when you get more of the urgent care, the emergency yeah. room and the physicians yeah. and starting to understand that they have compassion for these mm-hmm. patients, yeah. often... Yeah. I have a patient of mine whose daughter is a physician's assistant and is going through training. She also found out she does also have fibromyalgia-ish stuff as well as her mom, but younger in her 20s. But mom's Mm -hmm. looking back a lot of those central pain issues that now. And when she's working in her rotation in the emergency room and somebody makes a comment like, oh, those fibromyalgia patients are just drug seekers. And, you know, and hear this part of that and yet... I go, maybe someday she can work with me and we can help yes. have passion. Yeah. What are some areas of research that are maybe not talked about in the book, but are some mm-hmm. areas that you're thinking maybe adding some newer insights that are, yeah. I don't want to say cutting edge, people are working on. Yeah. So we have a very large grant. Dan Claw and I are the co or the MPIs, the multiple principal investigators on it, asking a question, an age-old question. We have treatments that work for people with chronic low back pain, right? But they only work for about a third of anybody who does the treatment. And so the age-old question is, what treatment works for what patient? Where do we start? Do we do PT first? Do I start with duloxetine? What? And so we're conducting two, one study at the University of Michigan, and then one with another 14 sites across the study. It's a collaborative clinical trial, trying to ask those very questions. So using very commonly used types of interventions that would have very different characteristics. So looking at a, a drug, duloxetine, looking at physical therapy, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, group therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, kind of delivered, coached, but also remotely a really advanced kind of online self-management program called Pain Guide, which is actually open to anybody. Just Google painguide.com. It's University of Michigan product. It's free. Your patients can run wild on it. It's great education and all sorts of really good interventions on it. But comparing those and trying to understand, just doing the phenotypic so we understand which patient responds best to which treatment. And it's a, and it's a smart design. So every patient gets two treatments. And so maybe also which treatment should come first based on what patient. And, and the dream is down the road, a busy physician or clinician can say, okay, Mrs. Smith has really severe pain. She doesn't have much depression, but boy, she's got a lot of sleep disturbance and she's, she's had pain for a very long time and she's incredibly out of shape or whatever. And boom, put those into a, into a computer and an algorithm will spit out, hey, the best thing to do is probably get that sleep under control first and then get her to physical therapy. That's the dream that we'll be able to better match patients to our treatment. So that's the first. And then the second thing we're doing is, of course, trying to come up with new treatments. I'm working with a wonderful 
a trainee named Drew Sturgeon, who has developed a short, a three-session version of pain reprocessing therapy. That therapy I told you about that kind of knocks it, <laughs> knocks the pain right out if you have that type of top-down pain. So to me, those things seem really promising because they not only make your job easier as someone who's treating patients, but they also, for your additional staff, if you have a behaviorist, that we are, how do you do these really effective treatments much quicker? So the PRT that we're developing is three, three, he's developing, it's just three sessions, one, two, three. Anybody can do that in, in, in two weeks, three weeks. So those are some of the exciting things. We were doing a lot with studying these resilience interventions we have. We have an app version of it that we're using in oncology caregivers and people with pain. We have, we have other apps that we're using in the perioperative setting. And we have, of course, we have our pain guide. We got our things. So yeah, so we're, just, we're constantly generating new things. And as always, we try to make them as open as possible. So the things that people have access to, we do this. These are NIH dollars frequently. And so it should be open to people to, to, to use awesome. and to distribute. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. A couple of thoughts, and this is part of working in the world of pediatrics, and and I'm don't know if Dr. Joel Young, he's up the road from you. I do. He is a psychiatrist, and he's done some research, both case studies and research looking at comorbid ADHD with chronic pain and showing uh-huh. improvement as we're seeing more of that. The other thing that, and I have an episode that will be uh, airing um, next week as an interview, is that the autism spectrum and chronic pain issues yeah. and what we're finding is that that part of autism is di- different ways of interpreting responses, like hypersensitivity yeah. and all yeah. of that. And and the interesting thing is, as a pediatrician, we were trained that's the low-speaking boy who's got quirky behaviors and self-stimming, and we're realizing that um, there is a tip of the iceberg. There are many women yeah. um, who are on that. Is that anything that you're looked at much of the researcher in that as a psychologist to me in the last six months uh, I did an interview with a family practice doctor who's up in Vermont named Dr. Mel Hauser and she found out when her child was young that her child had was on the spectrum and she recognized she had that and then she was having stress and recognizing having a lot of these comorbidities and had a lot of these symptoms and now she has a practice uh, dedicated to people who are um, neurodivergent on yeah. that spectrum. Any, if you, do you know much about that or is that anything? That I don't, but it, it maps on to my worldview and what we understand about the neuroscience of pain and sensitivity. I, I haven't thought about that before, but I think it's really on, on the market. It, again, there's just people who are very sensitive. I have a, a, another mentee who is so brilliant and she looks at trauma and, and how some people have chronic pain, but they also have social sensitivity and perhaps from trauma. So just, so emotions are overwhelming. Again, it feels like that's almost in that autistic spectrum. The same thing too. It's just a sensitivity to emotional, social. And as a doctor, Dr. Prezant 
I said, how many adults out there probably with on the spectrum are not diagnosed? Oh, the vast majority. Yeah. Sometimes it's only when their child gets diagnosed that then it's the reverse. They're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, There's some sad things. I had an 18-year-old today who met for the first time. Sadly, and with Dr. Barry Prezant said that people who are on the spectrum are five to seven times more likely to have gone through trauma. And this was a boy and mom was along and getting longer history that at two months and two days, the babysitter gave him shaken baby syndrome. Oh my gosh. He was a very colicky baby. Yeah. Much more harder to handle. Now, I think sometimes because they're have some of these struggles, they sometimes are external behaviors, are targets for receiving that. We don't recommend that. But again, if there's that awareness Mm -hmm. and people understand this, it turned out dad had some of those struggles when he was younger. And so Mm -hmm. if we can get that taught earlier, Mm -hmm. and it turned out talking to him that he has been, I hate the word antisocial, but different social and Probably on the spectrum, he was a very picky eater, so that sensory kind of thing. And, oh, that makes sense. And part of that, (laughs) what he said, I said, how helpful is it as an adult to get that awareness of the diagnosis? And he said, I've had over 200 people been diagnosed as adulthood. And they go, oh, my gosh, that explains so much of my life. And then part of that, oh, you have a different style, nervous system or brain. And mm-hmm. sometimes you recognize what are those ways of coping. And it might be, well, they like cross-country running because it's mm-hmm. not a social interaction, but it's rhythm, it's routine. Mm-hmm. They need that to, to keep busy. Or they mm-hmm. may be very good in music because it's a talent that maybe they have and then they can do that helps them calm. And many of the people also are on that very creative side. So when you're mm-hmm. doing some of those strategies, creating art, Mm-hmm. taps into the inhibitory pathways of yes. that to calm. And when you start to recognize, again, that there is agency, that you have some mm-hmm. control, oh, that mm-hmm. is a um, starting to move in the direction of getting better. Any other last thoughts here that you have? Uh, on, no. No. Uh, I, I love what you were just saying there because it, 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 it again, it just maps on to, we understand that when people with a chronic pain find these things that feel fulfilling, that they know how to soothe. <laughs> That's a big thing. They, they, they really know. So, you know what? I just need to go and knit for a while. <laughs> I need this. It's so repetitive. It's quiet. I'm creating something, the rhythmic you know, nature. But knowing internally what that is and then helping people come to terms with that and to prioritize it. Yeah. Thanks again so much for having yeah. you. I highly recommend the book and I'll be Thank encouraging you. my patients to have that and to look at it. And I think everybody will definitely benefit. And I hope it gets out there. I like the idea of evidence-based information because a lot of times when the world of this, there ends up being less evidence-based and that only causes a lot of I think, yeah. predatory practices, take mm-hmm. people taking advantage, going down routes that yeah. just... Every time you see another doctor or another care provider and you don't get better, your trust and hope and optimism are depleted. So getting this earlier in the game Mm -hmm. and that 
you can validate all of these. And in the book, you talk about the functional MRI and mm-hmm. that's uh, was insightful at changing yeah. the direction. Yet, unfortunately, you have to write a book 20 years after the fact because still many people don't understand no. that they don't have that yeah. information out there because it takes sometimes 17 years for the research to get there. And if it's not an expensive medication Mm -hmm. that's marketed by a drug company, or if it's not a procedure that a device makes a lot of money, it it takes a lot of time. But if you can have this, it could save a lot of money, but that's not how our system works. I asked Dr. Hassett what drove her to write the book. And it's bothered me for years that our research doesn't get out. And the thought was, if somebody's got to do this. <laughs> and so it was about halfway through the pandemic and we're all pretty much housebound. And I pretty much watched Lost all the way through twice. All the Gilmore Girls, every Star Wars episode from the in order. And I was like, oh my God, I am so tired of geeking out. I really just need to maybe do this. And yeah. I just I just launched in. Of course, I had no idea what to do because I'm an academic. I know how that all works. I just consulted the Google and it walked me through it. I found a wonderful agent because I was too silly to know that I couldn't. And she walked me through the rest of it. A lovely publisher. I, I love Norton Countryman. They've just been... There's personable and wonderful, and I just had a wonderful editor. So, yeah, it was just a great experience. I'd do it again. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. That's a Bye-bye. pleasure. Thank you so much. You take care, Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. I hope you found this two-part episode very insightful and helpful, and hope that this can help you live better on your journey of fibromyalgia and other invisible illnesses. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review if you haven't already done so. Hit the like and follow button and share it with others. That way more people who are struggling can learn to live better. Until next week, go Team Fibro. Fibro.